Welcome to Reframe Your Mindset for Success. With me today is Damien Hughes. Damien is an expert on high-performance cultures, a visiting professor at Manchester Metropolitan University. He's also the co-podcaster on the multi-million downloaded high-performance podcast, an author of several books from Liquid Thinking to his recent book on high-performance in the podcast, and also a motivational speaker. Now, I was fortunate to meet Damien for the first time about 10 years ago, and he provides practical and insightful knowledge on mindset, performance, and culture. Welcome to Reframe Your Mindset for Success. With me today is Damien Hughes. Hiya, Damien. Hiya, Paul. How are you, mate? You all right? I'm good, good, good. Um, what have you been up to this week? Well, it's been a nice gentle start to the year, to be honest. Uh, uh, Christmas was pretty full on. Um, so I've uh, been doing quite a lot of work in preparation. I, I, I work on a podcast series myself, um, and we've got quite a few guests coming up over the next few weeks. So one of my passions is just doing the reading and the research for it. So I've uh, been quite busy with that. Yeah, and that, that's the, the High Performance Podcast. It's been going exceptionally well, hasn't it? I mean, some of the guests are just fantastic. Yeah, yeah, we've been really lucky um, that we started it uh, nearly two years ago now. At the, and it was around the start of lockdown, which obviously wasn't intentional. But uh, yeah, I think that actually helped us because um, people had more time when they were going out for their hours walk a day or whatever. Um, they would uh, stick a podcast on and listen to it. And you're right, we were lucky. We had some brilliant guests on that came along and were really open and candid and uh, really practical with their ideas. So, uh, yeah, it seems to have snowballed a little bit in the two years since we launched it. And I, and I think, you know, last time that the we caught up with was back in 2019, and I remember seeing you doing a, a keynote talk at the time, and we'd caught up over the years anyway in, in you know, different organisations, different forms. And the world has changed a lot, hasn't it? So, you know, you think from 2019 to where we are today, you know, as you just said, you mentioned lockdown. Um, you, you know, how, how did you find that yourself? How did you find going through what everybody else has experienced at the same time? How's that been for you? Yeah, I mean, you're right. It's changed an awful lot. Um, I actually found lockdown a bit of a blessing, if I'm honest, Paul. But uh, yeah. I I sort of had a really frenetic and full-on, say, three, three years before that. And... At the end of 2019, I'd, I'd, I'd been away in Japan for uh, for a bit of a prolonged spell and, and, and I came home and I knew I was close to burnout. I was exhausted and uh, I was really um, worried about myself. And I'd said to my wife, um, I had some commitments in the diary up until March and I said to my wife, I said, I, said, I want to fulfil my commitments and then I need a break. I need to have a long, prolonged break just to recharge and refresh and 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 have a bit of thinking time so i sort of cleared my diary from March, <laughs> and then things started falling down just before it so my wife was looking at me suspiciously like have you, have you know, ordered a, a pandemic to facilitate it but um without being crass because i know that, uh, that it was difficult for an awful lot of people and the same for me in many ways but i chose quite quickly to try and look at the positives of it. And for me, the positives were 
not traveling, um, having time at home to refresh. And then one of the things that came out of it is I've, I've got two children and I felt um, my relationship with my children really strengthened just because I was around a lot more and we were able to spend more time together without constantly being rushed or rushing from one activity to another. And just the power of that and sort of the, the strength of the relationship between us sort of reinforced that I didn't want to go back to how I was anyway. So that prolonged absence, I felt really blessed in, uh, in lots of aspects, just because it's given me chance to, uh, uh, to be at home and be a bit more rooted. Yeah, that, that makes absolute sense, you know, and I do think, you know, for a lot of people, it was that spending more quality time at home with the family, you know, and re- really thinking about life in a different way. Now- 100%. Yeah. I mean, I'll give you an example. Like before we had, so my son is 12 now, but before um, he was born, I remember my wife and I sort of sat down and went, we don't know what we don't know about being a parent beyond being lucky enough to have had a really great mum and dad ourselves. We went, what do we know about parenting? So we went on, um, a, um, a lady I knew was running a parenting skills course. And uh, we went along just to sort of get some ideas on what to expect. And she did this really lovely exercise that, that really the, the memory of that came back to me uh, during lockdown. But the exercise she did was she asked us all in groups to write down the best memories we had of, of our childhoods and just go away in groups. And everyone was writing down different activities and then you came back and presented it. And she asked us to identify some of the common threads and people were talking about, you know, being in the park, but, uh, or kicking a ball around or going to football matches or whatever it was. But the two threads that came out of it was, one of them was that most of the activities we were describing didn't cost anything. It was like being out in the park, going out for a walk. And the second thing was that at least one of your parents was present and was there with you. And at the start, and it was a brilliant exercise when we did it 12 years ago, but when lockdown came, it, I was reminded of it really starkly and went, right, you, you can't go out and do anything too outlandish. So it's about going to the park with the kids and playing like um, rounders or, you know what I mean? Like just pushing them on the swings and things yeah, like that. Yeah but actually being with them and those two factors really came back to me. And, and, and again, it's almost like the simplicity of life that lockdown forced on all of us that you go, how much have we complicated things? How much have we sort of trying to do big set piece things with the kids when actually the reality is they don't want to go on. I mean, I'm not saying they don't want to go on nice holidays or go to nice places, but the reality is all they want is your time and attention. Yeah, no, so totally agree. You know, you know that time and attention and actually being there, isn't it? You know, being, being present. You know, yeah. it, it's so easy in the world that we used to live in to you know be away with work or be busy with work, and now actually sometimes just just actually being at home it is just a massive plus when it comes to children. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I hundred percent agree with you, Paul. I think uh, like I know it's been difficult, and like I say, I don't. I mean, I wish to be crass for anyone listening to this that go, actually, I found lockdown really hard. I have as well. There's not, I'm not presenting it as a utopia, but it, I, I think when you try and look for the positives, look for uh, the green shoots in it, you, you can find them there. Yeah, absolutely, definitely. 
So I always start the podcast with your story, Damien. So, you know, in, in your words, how, how would you describe your story? <laughs> um, so, well, if I start, the, the, I think it's a brilliant place to start any conversation with. So I appreciate you asking me. Um, somebody's origin story is always interesting. I'm a Manchester lad. Um, I'm, my background is a little bit unusual that I grew up in a boxing gym. So uh, my dad was a boxing coach um, and he, he, he was doing that long before I was even born. Um, and anyone that's listening to this might have a sort of image of what a inner city boxing club looks like. And the, where I grew up conformed to many of those sort of um, perceptions. So it was in um, an area of Manchester called Moston, which a few years ago, the general area was categorised as being one of Europe's third poorest districts. And the reason I mention that is it gives people an idea of some of the social deprivation that follows, like high unemployment, gangs, drugs, uh, those kind of difficulties. Yeah. But the part of the reason I mention it is that um, the boxing club was a real um, community hub. It was almost like an oasis in, in a quite difficult environment. And both, and that, and, and that origin sort of shaped the nature of the work that I do today. So I was around high performance uh, from as far back as I can remember. So I was around guys that were going off to Olympic Games. I was around guys that were boxing for world titles. Uh, so I was around the sort of demands of what high performance in any discipline looks like. Uh, and, I, and I often say that that shaped a lot of my passion for working in the shadows. So I wasn't ever blinded by the bright lights of a big occasion. I was more yeah. fascinated by what took place in the months that preceded it. But the other thing that really sort of stood out from that was the power of culture. So again, a lot of the work that I do now is about working uh, with organizations looking to create high-performing cultures. And what I found is that in this environment, as I say, give you some context of the sort of, um, of, of, of where it was based, but people came there because they wanted to feel welcome. They wanted to feel valued. They wanted to feel that they had a place that they were belonged and respected. Yeah. And I'll give you a nice sort of coda to the story. But a few years ago, Manchester Council named a road in tribute to my dad uh, because of the nature of the work that he'd done um, in, in the area. But on the day we did it, on the day that it was unveiled, um, we had about 300 people turn up. Uh, it was a really cold, bitterly January afternoon. And like Andy Byrne and the mayor came along to unveil it. And I remember being stood there with my brothers and my sister and looking around. And I'd say I estimated about 80% of the people that came along that day had never set foot in a boxing ring. And the reason I mentioned that is that yeah. the, the boxing club wasn't about boxing. It was people came along and talked about the impact that being in an environment where they were respected and they felt they were valued and they could truly belong, the impact that had had on them as parents, as partners, as professionals, and in all other aspects of life, showed me how powerful culture could be as well. So that was very much my background uh, of where I grew up. And, it's, it, and, you know, we often say that we don't do research at university, we do me-search. And I often feel that, I can trace a lot of my passions back to those origins, as I'm sure lots of your other guests are the same. Yeah, no, God, that, that makes sense. And 
you know, obviously such a profound experience and to have that, you know, father figure as well to, to help shape you and bring you along and build your self-esteem. It, it must have been, it must have been a great environment to be in. Yeah, 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 it was. Um the that like my first job, I mean, there's so many that um things that I look back at now as an adult and I go, ah, right, yeah, I understand why uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, why that is. So, like, the first job I ever had, I'll tell you a funny story, but uh, the first job I ever... So, I used to go along with my dad and I'd, I'd sort of carry the spit bucket or, like, when they were in the dressing room for the fights, I used to love... Because I'd seen these guys doing all the preparation in the months leading up to it. I used to love going along and being in the dressing room and watching them get ready for it before they go out and hopefully execute what they've been planning. And um, I remember once I was at the GMEX Centre in Manchester and uh, we were in the dressing room and there was a boxing promoter called Mickey Duff that came down. And uh, basically the ring card girls had let him down. So the girls are getting in the ring in between rounds and sort of showed off what round it was coming up next. They hadn't turned up and he was in a panic. And uh, I, that was my first ever job, being the ring card girl. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, yeah. So he came along and he offered, uh, my dad negotiated on my behalf. And I think he got something like 20 quid to do the whole evening's bill where I'd have to scramble in the ring in between um, uh, when the bell had gone and walk around. <laughs> and I'll tell you what, like, it was a seminal experience at 14 years of age, having 7,000 people stand up and boo you. <laughs> disappointment <laughs> that they yeah. expected some glamorous looking girl getting in and then they saw a 14 year old scrot like me scrambling <laughs> in. I do as an adult I can appreciate the disappointment but uh I the, so things like that um were just really rich do you know what I mean I feel incredibly lucky to have been around experiences like that yeah. um and and you know I'm really privileged to be able to pass on some of those lessons to my own children as well. Did, did you ever try out the boxing yourself? Did, did yeah, you? yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, 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 I did. Yeah, so it almost was unavoidable that that you, that we were going to get in the boxing ring. So I've got two two brothers and a sister. So uh, the uh, f- the boys got in the ring, um, and I'll tell you, I've, I had a book come out just before Christmas. Um, about the podcast and in the introduction we had to write a little bit about our background so I've done it with my friend Jake so he wrote about his and then the publisher was saying um, oh you need to tell a story about your origins and things like that so I put this story in and they were like oh we like that and I think part of it was because it's a story about me getting my comeuppance in a boxing ring (laughs) (laughs) but the story I wrote and again it's all about sort of these seminal influences but I was about 13 and I'd been sparring since since I was little. And I was in the ring with a kid and um, it was obvious in the first couple of seconds we were overmatched. And what that means is that I, that I, that I was better than him. And in that situation, in sort of in a proper learning environment, when you're in a situation like that, you then sort of slow down, you go at their pace and you almost coach them. So you're almost saying to him, right, you throw this punch and I'll slip this. Yeah. But I was a 13-year-old idiot and didn't. And as I sort of took advantage of being superior. So I, I took a liberty or two with the kid and, you know, threw big shots at him and kept slipping and making it. And and it was pretty unpleasant, really. And the story is that as I was getting out of the ring, um, my dad come over and he went, um, he said, where are you going? 
I said, I finished sparring. He said, you've not done a workout there. He said, stay in the ring. And as he did, so he signaled to a young professional boxer to step in the road <laughs> in between the ropes <laughs> with me. And what this guy did for the next 10 minutes was just humiliate me. So he didn't hurt me, but he just slipped every punch of her. He sort of kept jabbing my head back and he just made me look an idiot. And I was aware as I, I, as this was happening that the whole gym had stopped to watch me get served up a slice of humble pie. Oh no. <laughs> but the experience was, was, was really quite profound because as I was getting out of the ring and I remember sort of choking back the tears of humiliation and my dad came over and he said, how do you feel? And I couldn't speak properly because I thought, if I do, I want to cry. And he just said to me quietly, he said, how you feel now is exactly how you made that lad feel just before you. Uh, and he said, don't ever, ever, ever bully anybody again. And wow. I'm telling that story sort of 30 odd years later, but yeah, yeah. But the message is like, it still makes the hairs on the back of my neck stand up. I still squirm a little bit of embarrassment at, at it. But actually, it was really seminal because even now as an adult, I think, you know, if you're ever in a position of where you see people being bullying or unpleasant, it's I go straight back there in my mind and always sort of remind myself that being kind, being decent, having a bit of humility is a far, a far more effective way of conducting your life than behaving like a dick like I did. Yeah, I mean, absolutely such a profound experience that, that you've, that you carried with you and you know as you say it's, it's nice to be nice isn't it and especially it's kind of what we've been talking about with lockdown and the pandemic if it's sort of one thing it's, it's to be a lot kinder and you know oh, 100%. well i mean the, the, that it's an interesting one but i saw again one of the things that i decided in lockdown was i just came off social media because it was like this isn't a world where kindness or being decent or things like that it is necessarily uh, respected. And when we started the High Performance Podcast, um, you know, you get people coming in with comments and often it, it wasn't constructive comments. It was just like, you're a wanker. He's uh, like, we did an interview, say, for example, with uh, the footballer Saul Campbell and people were copying us in to messages like, uh, like, they were just vile. I was like looking at it, like reading it, thinking this is just like deeply, deeply unpleasant. And I was telling my wife about it and she said, well, you've got two choices. You either just toughen up and accept that that's the way it is or remove yourself from the conversation. And I went, you know what? I want to remove myself from the conversation. I'm yeah. like, I'm not going to engage. I'm not going to put myself out there where somebody has the opportunity of being vile to you. And there's no consequences of it. Yeah, it makes makes complete sense. And you, you know, you're quite right. The social social media, it, it's a plethora, isn't it, of you know responses in some respects, and how you choose to respond to them. You know, my my viewpoint is with the lockdown is that it's just if anything, it should have taught us to to be kinder, to be nicer. You know, with people, if if you weren't already doing it, you know, as, as it is, but. You know, so social media sometimes it you know people just take it to a completely different level, don't they? You know, the trolls and those type of comments. But as you say, removing yourself from that, it can only be a good thing. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'm not saying that that's the same for for everybody or their experience. I'm certainly not advocating that everybody should do that. But I just thought, from my point of view, 
that I went back to that experience in the boxing ring and just thought, like, I'm some of the responses on there are the equivalent of what I did to that kid that day. And it was just yeah. like, I don't want to be around. Like, I, you know, I was made aware of the consequences of my actions pretty quickly. Whereas I think for a lot of people, it's like that old Mike Tyson quote that social media has made a lot of people comfortable disrespecting others without getting a smack in the mouth as a consequence. And I think that that's fine and that's the way it is, but it doesn't mean that 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 I have to be a part of that. Totally agree. Totally agree. So, so talking about, you know, obviously you've been talking about your background and story from, yeah. from when you were young and obviously you helped organisations to develop culture and you've got the High Performance Podcast. You know, I, I know when we, we were last talking, when we last met, you'd been helping with the coaching around the Scottish national rugby team. So, yeah. you know, how, how did that actually go? You know, you still, you still doing some of that stuff? Yeah, I loved it. So um, I, I, um, I, I did a four year cycle with them. So the cycle was to take them up to the world cup in Japan. Um, so I worked with the coaches there um, for, for four years and met some brilliant people. I had a lot of fun doing it as well. Uh, that was helping them almost, we establish a high performance culture. Um, and again, there were some amazing experiences. Like we had one where we, um, I felt really blessed. I was in the dressing room when um, we came in at half time at Twickenham, 31 7 down, uh, which was the biggest sort of uh, half time score in, <laughs> I was in, in, the, game. <laughs> in the Calcutta Cup match. And that, like, like, I wasn't thinking at that stage of, shit, this doesn't actually reflect very well on me. Because <laughs> <laughs> it was more the trauma going into the dressing room and seeing it. And then at halftime, um, watching what happened. And then the second half came out and we had the biggest turnaround in those matches in international rugby to come yeah, back and incredible. draw the game. Yeah. Um, so I felt really lucky that I was involved in experiences like that. Um, but... I often think there's a danger when you sort of talk, when I talk about it in terms of the nature of the work that I do, because a lot of the work is often difficult to quantify or to be tangible. So it'd be easy to go, oh yeah, I, I, you know, I was a significant figure and I don't believe it was. I believe that I, 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 that there's some amazing coaches and there were some amazing players there and I was fortunate enough to work with them and maybe offer some help or advice, but it was them that were, that we're at the sharp end of the performance. And uh, I loved it. So I've been doing that for a number of different teams um, and clubs uh, over the last 15 years, predominantly. Uh, and uh, yeah, I still really enjoy it. I still, I think for me, the the litmus test is whether uh, you're working with coaches that are really open to actually giving these ideas a go or whether they're just doing it as a bit of a tick box tick exercise. Tick box exercise, yeah, yeah. Brilliant. And I, you know, I, I can remember cursing you when I was watching that game, by the way. I was thinking, this is Damien's influence. This <laughs> <at that time." laughs> I wish it was. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, I mean, what was really interesting about it was that there was, there's all, there was like a mythology that sprang up as a consequence because people sort of look for like the witchcraft and go, what happened? What happened? There must have been something amazing. And then you get the narrative of it must have been like an explosive row and the coaches must have been peeling the paint off the walls. They were furious. And the reality is I've, I've been present for a few of these turnarounds and it never happens like that. The reality yeah. was that 
in this case, the head coach, a guy called Gregor Townsend, was furious. He, uh, but what he did was brilliant. It was like a masterclass in emotional control. He disappeared for about five minutes, let the players lick the wounds, sort of get the treatment. And, but, and when he came back, he was calmness personified. Wow. And what he did was he just said, forget the result. Forget the result. Forget, he didn't use these exact words, but it wasn't like the game has gone. So let's not kid ourselves that we're going to turn this around. But then he'd shift the, their focus and went, we need to be able to walk out of this stadium with our heads held high. So let's focus on how do we do that. And then what we'd done a lot in the preceding four years, was we'd spoken a lot about trademark behaviours, non-negotiable behaviours. Yeah. And he reminded them of what our behaviours were and said, you haven't shown up and behaved as we are when we're at our best. So we reminded them of that. And then what was fortunate was, because then that becomes tangible and practical. So as a player, you're not thinking, how do we turn this around? You're thinking, how do I show up? How do I perform? How do I behave over the next 40 minutes? And that gives you something that's within your control. And that's the message he gave them. And the players then adopted it and carried out the game plan in association with those behaviours, which is where the turnaround uh, came from. Yeah, it was, a, it was absolutely fantastic game to watch. It really was. So, so looking at, you know, if we, we talk about your mindset, Damien, why is mindset so important in what you do? Oh, wow, that's a brilliant question. Um, mindset's important in anything. That if you, so if I can reference the, um, the book that we've just, um, that we've just come out, this high-performance book, um, the reason that I'm mentioning that is because I've just immersed myself for the last two years in writing it. So we've interviewed so over 75 high-performers uh, in sport, business, and the arts, and then tried to distill it. And what we found is, if you think of it like Russian dolls, there's almost three, like, there's three Russian dolls that fit inside each other. And the first Russian doll is mindset. It's a high-performance mindset. That then, the second doll is about high-performance behavior. So how we think affects how we behave. And then the third one is, how does that impact on others? And that's the culture bit. So the mindset is the start of all our journey. So what we've looked at is that seeing that we divided mindset into three areas, if you like, Paul. The first one is around yeah. taking complete accountability. So there's a big theme there about fault versus responsibility. So if we go back to our conversation about the pandemic, that's nobody's fault, but it's our responsibility on how we respond to, on how we deal with it. Yeah. So, you know, we all make mistakes. That might not be our fault, but it's our responsibility on how we respond to that. So understanding, first of all, where the locus of control lies. It's, it's the work of Albert Bandura, the psychologist, that talks about high and low self-efficacy. So people that have low self-efficacy tend to point the finger of blame elsewhere. They tend to say, it's not my fault, it's yours. Those with high self-efficacy tend to take accountability for whatever happens to them. And what all the evidence in the last 80 years on that field tells us is that people tend to be better performing, they tend to be happier, they tend to have better mental health when they have high, higher levels of self-efficacy. So there's word that says, look at the three Ps on that. When something goes wrong, the three P says, you make it personal. They, they don't like me. We make it permanent. This is all the time. This always happens. And then we make it pervasive. Nobody's any good at this. Nobody ever buys from me. Whereas if you change that language, 
how you improve self-efficacy is you start talking about, you make it external. So it's a set of circumstances you have to deal with. It's not about your competency. You make it specific. You know, I've been rejected the last two times rather than all the time. And yeah. the third one is you make it um, um, uh, temporary. So you break it down into these areas. High self-efficacy is around the mindset that uh, starts, it's effectively around um, about accountability. Then we next look at, in terms of um, having a, a level of emotional control. So then it's around our emotional control. How do we cope when we come under pressure? So if we're going to push ourselves out of our comfort zone, by definition, that implies we're going to come under pressure. Yeah. So having a common language of understanding how our brain responds under pressure is really useful. And then once we can understand it, we, can, we, we almost have a narrative around it. And then once we have that narrative, we can then come up with a series of stories or techniques or tools that help us to cope. So a really nice way we wrote about was that when you come under pressure, traditionally you can divide it down to, um, there's a guy called Richard Lorenzo, a psychologist that deals in stress. And he says, most stress is caused by one of three things, demands, abilities, or consequences. So if you just pause for a second and break that down, you say sometimes it's what you think is being expected of you, the demands can often make us feel like we're, that we're under an awful lot of pressure. I need to do this. I've got to do this. I yeah. have to do it. There's the other way is sometimes we don't feel we have the abilities to cope with it. I'm not sure I'm good enough. I'm not sure I've got the resources to be able to handle it. Or the consequences of, if I get it wrong, it's a disaster. There's going to be a catastrophe is the consequences bit. So what, what we find interviewing our high performers is that they, they often look to minimize the demands on them so they don't get caught up in winning or losing, being, a, being almost a reference point for who they are. They focus on their abilities of what they're good at and play to their strengths, and they minimize the consequences so they don't think that losing makes you a loser. They just think it's a loss, but it's nothing about their own identity. So... That, that's mindset as well. And yeah. then the third pillar of it is around motivation, that we're all, we all have high levels of motivation at the start of a project and at the end of a project, but it often dips somewhere in the middle. So understanding that motivation and how that works, and again, all the evidence on this says that this is from two guys called DC and Ryan that have been exploring this since the 1970s, two psychologists that say, Intrinsic motivation, motivation that comes from within, is always far more longer lasting and sustainable than extrinsic that comes from without. So then you say, so how do I create intrinsic motivation? And what they found is there's three pillars. The first of all is you need to have a sense of control over what you're working on, so autonomy. The second one is you need to have a sense of belonging, that you feel that you're working as part of something bigger than yourself or with a wider group than yourself. And then the, um, the, uh, the third element of that then is about you have to be playing to your strengths. You have to have work on something that is a natural strength for you, that's yeah. a competence. So if you think about, say, people that might be wanting to lose weight at the start of a year, you say, well, you need to understand, first of all, have you set your own weight targets or have you ever imposed on you? Are you doing fitness exercises and diets that 
actually you enjoy because if you enjoy them and you find it doesn't have to be running if you don't enjoy running, it might be swimming or it might be eating certain diets with certain foods and rather than denying yourself, it's about doing more of what you love. And then it's about surrounding yourself with people that are also on a similar journey or appreciate the journey you're on and can offer you encouragement. So that's mindset as well. So I think what, to answer your question, I've given you a long-winded answer. Yeah, that's so okay. Apologies for waffling. But I think the point I'd make is that mindset is quite an abstract term. Oh yeah, they've got the right mindset, but it's not something you're born with or, or without. It's something that can be developed by breaking it down into into its component parts and saying, is it about motivation? If it's about motivation, let's look at what that means. Is it about self-efficacy? If it's self-efficacy and responsibility, let's have a look at how we develop it. Is it about emotional control? If it is, let's work out how we become better. So I think mindset is the, almost the umbrella term, but there's awful lot of detail that, uh, that goes underneath it. Um, uh, makes complete sense. So this is great explanation. You were modeling, by the way. So brilliant. <laughs> on, on the basis of, you know, obviously the, the, the career you've had and, you know, the, the studies and research that you've done and you, you being you day to day, how would you describe your mindset? Oh, wow. Okay. Um, I, I think I've, I've, I've invested an awful lot of time um, in trying to understand it and be better at this. I think for a, a long time, um, I wouldn't have I'd have described um, my own mind as being a pretty unpleasant place for anybody else to have come and explored in terms of, I don't always feel um, I was particularly kind to myself. And what I mean yeah. by that is that uh, I was quite driven. So um, the even since being a kid, um, again, I'll tell you a quick origin story that um, I ended up getting really lucky that um, I got a scholarship to go to a, a really good, uh, good school. It was a fee-paying school, and I got a scholarship at the age of 12. So coming from my background, nobody else had gone to that school. Uh, so I was almost like the first in the family to, uh, to do that, and I was aware of how privileged uh, I'd been to get in there. But I, knowing now, looking back at it in adult eyes, I felt the demands uh, of what were expected of me were quite high. I didn't have an awful lot of confidence in my ability and the consequences of getting it wrong felt quite stark. So what that led me to do is uh, to be a bit of a dick, if I'm honest. So I told you that story about in the boxing ring yeah. when I was younger, but I went into that environment and I was almost hyper alert for any offence or any slight. And long story short, after a couple of years, I got myself expelled from there for constantly fighting and being in trouble and just generally being a disruptive influence. And what happened was that um, I was an altar boy at the same time, which probably doesn't fit the narrative, <laughs> but at the local Catholic church where I grew up, um, I was serving on the altar. And uh, one day before I got myself into uh, expelled, a teacher from uh, my school had come to mass and he'd seen me on the altar and I can remember looking at him and he was, he was trying to compute these two, uh, these two facts that I was a bit of a hoodlum at school. And yet there I was serving on the altar, <laughs> looking like an angel. And I could see that he couldn't square that circle. And when I went back into school, he sort of, uh, 
came and asked me about it and asked me about the family and he knew my dad ran the community boxing club and things like that. And the reason I mention this is that when I got expelled for fighting, um, that evening, this teacher called Bernard Council turned up at my mum and dad's house to come and speak to them. And uh, what I'll forever be in his debt for was that he agreed to go and uh, stand up for me at school and see if he could persuade them to change their decision. But I was brought down and made really clear that if, if this happened, it, I was almost drinking in the last chance saloon. And that is what happened. Um, and I remember sort of, I was about 14 and recognizing how privileged I'd been to be given a second chance. And I made a sort of commitment to myself that I was going to, I didn't feel it was the cleverest kid in the school, but I thought I can be the hardest working. So I sort of then committed myself to trying my best in whatever I did and I'd go the extra mile. And I think what that led in adulthood was to sort of never give myself a break, never yeah. uh, sort of get, uh, allow myself. So I think so, like some of the narrative that was going on in my mind for a long time was that if I was exhausted, I'd go, just man up, stop moaning, get on with it. And I kept pushing myself and pushing myself. And long story short, I, um, I sort of got myself, I had a couple of warning shots. I, I got seriously ill on two occasions where on both occasions I was taken into hospital um, with a oh, serious gosh. illness, which was yeah. meningitis. And that was, um, that was a bit of a catalyst along with my son being born to ask myself, how would I feel if somebody spoke to my son in the way that I was speaking to myself? And the reality was it left me horrified that, somebody would be so uncaring or just so relentless and remorseless uh, with him. And when he was young enough, I remember thinking to myself that one of the lessons that I often teach, um, whether it's at university or, or in working with teams, is that we don't follow hypocrites. We're hardwired not to follow hypocrites, to spot people that talk a good game and don't back it up themselves. I remember thinking to myself, I can't tell my son that he's got to be kind and gentle and understanding with himself if I'm not role modeling that behavior. Yeah. So to answer you again, it's a long winded answer to your question, but I'd, I've invested an awful lot of time over the last five years, I'd say, trying to be a lot kinder to myself and a lot more understanding. You know, so I mean, I've had my fair share of cock ups and disasters and mistakes in that time. But I think if that would have happened prior to me trying to role model these behaviours better, I think it, it, I'd, I'd have been in a lot darker place for a lot longer. Whereas today I try and sort of just say, you know what, you made a mistake. You didn't do it intentionally. There's a wider context to it. And so when I gave you the example before about social media, just come off that world. Because if you're not on it, you don't have to, get caught up in that kind of unpleasantness. Oh, it makes complete sense. And I think, I think that's a, a good practical tip for, for anybody listening, you know, just around mindset is, is to be a lot kinder on yourself. You know, a lot of the time we, we talk about being kind to others, but you've got to be kind to yourself as well, haven't you? Oh, well, it's that, I don't believe, I, my belief on this is that I don't believe that you have the capacity to be kind to others consistently if you're not being kind to yourself i think that when 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 you start and it sounds quite selfish to say you have to 
start with yourself, but I don't think it is. I think when you're kind to yourself, you can see other people that are maybe struggling or falling or failing, and you don't seek to demonize them and say, you're a dickhead, you're shit, you're this or that. You go, you know what? You've given it a go. So it's like, I I say this to my wife sometimes when we go out, you know, like if we take the kids out, you might go like, you might go for a walk and you might go to a cafe at the end of it and get a cup of tea. And it never fail. I never fail to acknowledge this is somebody's dream. This cafe started off in somebody's head as a dream. Yeah. And I'm always intrigued then to see if you see the owner there and hopefully it's still their dream where they're passionate about it. Or you look at the staff that they've got and go, they don't share your dream. They don't give a shit about the way they speak to staff. <laughs> whereas, but this was your dream of creating a, an environment where people could come and get a cup of tea and, and a bit of toast and sit there and feel it was a really warm place to be or whatever it is. It's like any business, any restaurant, anything like that is somebody's dream. And I think when you see them struggling or going through difficulties, I think when you're kind to yourself, that then gives you the capacity to become kind to them and give them feedback or tell them what they're doing well. Once again, makes complete sense. Do you you know from, obviously you've done, you know, the podcast been going for the last couple of years, you've interviewed so many brilliant and and amazing people. And, you know, you've talked about, you know, your upbringing, the influence of the boxing gym, your father, um, some of the work that you've done the last five years. Is there anybody else who's, who's helped you with, with your mindset or, or has there been something that with one of the interviews in the podcast that we've gone, you know, that's brilliant advice that's stuck with you? Yeah. Yeah. Well, if we talk about the podcast, yeah, definitely that there's been, um, there's been loads, but if we talk about the ones that have sort of really resonated where I've thought, yeah, I'm going to take that idea on board and do something, a little bit different with it is um, when we interviewed the, the Hollywood actor, Matthew McConaughey, he had this really good idea of um, he, so he wrote a book called green lights and the green light says that when everything's going well in your life, where you're getting green lights, at every traffic light you go to, you, you think it'll last forever. And then when it takes a turn for the otherwise and you start getting red lights, you can't understand it. And what he said is, you need to almost keep keep a journal, keep notes of when things are going really well so that when you hit the bad spots, you can go back to what was working well and go, what am I not doing? What What's different here? And I use a phrase frequently, I talk about success leaves clues and say, when you're successful, don't take it for granted, do a proper forensic analysis of it. And it's a bit like what McConaughey says of go back and look for your green lights, where are they occurring? And that way, when things are off track or you're not getting the results you want, you've almost got a blueprint to go back to and refer to and say, so what was I doing when it was going well? Yeah. I've maybe taken my eye off the ball. And you'll often find it can be something quite simple. It might be a bit of self-care. It might be about giving yourself a bit of time uh, to stop and think. It might just be about having rest time. Things like that are stuff that when I've gone back to my journals and looked at them, I've realized that when when I'm struggling a bit, I can often find the clues at the times when things were going well. So for a really simple tip, that uh, that really resonated with me. Uh, that's that's brilliant. You know, good great advice as well. It's such a great book as well by by Matthew. 
Um, just, just to, to conclude then, just a couple of things that I, I normally close off with. It, and one of them is, I know you've shared some funny stories already, but I normally finish with a, a funny story. Either, you know, through your career, it might have been, you know, the, the, the podcast recently. You know, does, does anything come to mind from a story perspective, from your exploits? A story from that's happened to me? The, the, yeah, that might be funny in, in some respects, you know. Ah, right, sorry, yeah, yeah, sorry, yeah. Sorry, sorry for misunderstanding. Uh, yeah, um, I mean, there's been there's been quite a lot, really, that we've been incredibly fortunate that when we've been doing the podcast, we've, um, we've, we've gone to some, some quite interesting places to go and do it. So, like, when we interviewed the football manager, Mauricio Pochettino, uh, he was kind enough to invite us to his house, and uh, I've—I don't know about you, Paul, but I've, ne- <laughs> like, I've never been to a house where it takes me two minutes to walk up the driveway. Oh no way! <laughs> <laughs> so, so things like that sort of—it's not particularly funny, but it sort of just leaves me feeling surreal. really blessed and really, yeah, really surreal and uh, and really fortunate. Clive Woodward did the same, like come to my house and. We sat in his back garden, and I'm sat there thinking, wow. like, how have, I, how have we ended up here? But uh, yeah, there's been um, the one that always sort of I'll share with you was we interviewed a guy called Dylan Hartley, who was a former England uh, rugby union captain. Yeah, and uh, when he walked into the room, his opening introduction to me was he said, oh, "I've met loads of people like you." He said, "I've chewed them up and I've spat them out." <laughs> I remember looking at Jake and going, you know, this will be this will be interesting. And I, so you probably got an image of him on the basis of that, and yet he couldn't have been more different. And I think what he was doing was he was testing, testing it was almost it. his way of testing you. See like see what you've got. And then the reality was when we sat down with him, he was lovely, he was kind, he was considerate, he was really open and fun. But it I suppose that was a moment of thinking, well, I'm not in Kansas anymore, Dorothy. It's like, uh, yeah, yeah. I remember thinking, yeah. right, you need to, like, don't think that uh, you can just cruise through this. You need to be on your metal, which, yeah. uh, again, I don't know how funny that is, but it was uh, it was an insight for me. Brilliant, brilliant. So, so one last piece of advice to finish off then, Damien, what would it be? Be kind, be kind. Be and kind. I know that loads of people sort of put messages like that out there frequently, but I, I think hopefully the the conversation we had a little bit earlier on, Paul, explains why I think when you're kind, you have the ability to be kind to others. Brilliant. Well, thank you for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Um, I mean, talking about podcasts, yours is the number one podcast out there. So it's been exceptional. Uh, the book that you've got out, High Performance, Lessons from the best on becoming your best with, with Jake Humphrey. It's, it's brilliant. So I do recommend that to everybody out there as well. So thank you, Damien. No, thank you, Paul. It's been a real, real pleasure to come and chat with you, but I think what you're doing is exceptional. I think the podcast and the work that you do is, uh, is next level stuff. So uh, it's a real honor to be asked to come on and, uh, and speak on such a brilliant podcast. So thank you. What a great episode of Reframe Your Mindset with Damien News. Damien never disappoints. What strikes me with Damien is the ability 
to be able to take mindset and performance and share what very practical tools, tips, stories and techniques that we can all use. And when we think about reframing our mindsets, especially with everything that's been going on in the world, the importance of staying humble, of being kind to others and being kind to yourself. And Damien talks about how important mindset is when it comes to high performance and shared some amazing stories in that episode. So what a great episode. It was brilliant to have Damien on. I hope you enjoyed it. Let me tell you something you already know. The world ain't all sunshine and rainbows. It's a very mean and nasty place, and I don't care how tough you are, it will beat you to your knees and keep you there permanently if you let it. You, me, or nobody is going to hit as hard as life. But it ain't about how hard you hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward, how much you can take and keep moving forward. That's how winning is done. Now, if you know what you're worth, now go out and get what you're worth. But you got to be willing to take the hits and not pointing fingers saying you ain't where you want to be because of him or her or anybody. Cowards do that and that ain't you. You're better than that. I'm always going to love you no matter what. No matter what happens. You're my son. You're my blood. You're the best thing in my life. But until you start believing in yourself, you ain't gonna have a life.